Hey, y'all, this is Tressie McMillan Cottom with my girl, Roxanne Gay. We are the hosts of the Luminary original podcast, Here to Slay. And this month, Luminary is continuing to amplify Black voices by sharing a selection of favorite episodes. We picked this particular episode of Here to Slay to share with you because both Tressie and I have been negotiating the publishing world for quite some time, and we have found that the rules are a little bit different when you're Black. Publishing While Black aired on November 17th, 2020, and we speak with Lisa Lucas and Tanya McKinnon about their experiences as powerful Black women in publishing and what they do to serve all writers, but especially Black writers in the industry. You can listen to more of us and more of Here to Slay and lots of other great shows by going to luminary.link slash Black Voices. That's luminary.link slash Black Voices. You know, it would have helped, by the way, if we could hear the music. I can't hear it in my brain. It's all right. But I'm trying dun, to match dun, the dun, beat. Dun, 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 Thank you, girl. From Luminary, this is Here to Slay. Y'all, we're still the Black feminist podcast of your dreams. I don't care what anybody says. I'm Tressie McMillan Cottom. And I am Roxanne Gay. On Here to Slay, Tressie and I talk about politics, work, pop culture, food, life, love, you know, whatever mm-hmm. we need to talk about. That's right. And we also talk to people who have something to say because we're so tired of people who talk but have nothing to say. The one thing you're always going to get here on Here to Slay is that our guests have something to say. And when we say people, we honestly just <laughs> mean women, mostly women, mostly black women, women That's in the right. media, in the arts, in politics, women who are getting shit done, and the very occasional man. The threshold is so high for the men, Roxanne. It's almost out of this universe how high that threshold is. As it should be. We raised the bar here on Here to Slay. Hey, girl. Hey. <laughs> hey, Tressie. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. We, um, yeah. uh, we are now more than a week past the election. Mm-hmm. And we know that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are our next president and vice president. Mm-hmm. But we also don't know because right? Trump refuses to concede and the Republicans are trying all kinds of shenanigans. Now, if you're not paying attention and I can't imagine a single listener of this show is not paying attention. Yeah. You know, the Trump administration is lodging all kinds of lawsuits. And those are the least of our worries because they're all frivolous and being thrown out and, in fact, laughed out. Mm -hmm. But my goodness, there's some other stuff happening, too. The idea that we are watching a political coup happen in real time is both stunning and not, particularly if you are a black person in this country, We are very accustomed to white people changing the rules to benefit themselves. However, there's usually been some at least performance of the, you know, of people saying that the rules aren't changing. We don't even have that performance. One of the things about the Trump administration and this Republican Party, because it isn't just Trump, by the way. Correct. Is that they are not even pretending there isn't even a good cover story oh, no. for the theft that they are enacting right now. They are not pretending. I, I mean, I, I've long thought they were getting out of control when Trump refused to concede uh, early on, but he's a coward. So, of course, he wouldn't. But 
when Mitch McConnell fixed his face to go on national television from the Senate chamber to say that we should let this play out, I knew that they really are going to try and do this and everyone's going to tell us that we're being paranoid. But excuse mm-hmm. me, I'm from Haiti. I know a fucking coup when I see one. <laughs> and it's I'm really worried. Mm-hmm. The intellectual part of me knows that nothing is going to come to pass, probably. But the Republicans, and this is why the Democrats will never win, the Republicans are ruthless. They don't care what they said about the Constitution mattering. Right. They don't care about the peaceful transition of power. What they do care about is storytelling. And mm-hmm. they tell the better story. And the story mm-hmm. they're telling right now is that this election was stolen and that there are now mm-hmm. legal votes, which are the votes that white people cast, and mm-hmm. illegal votes, which are all of the votes that people in Atlanta and Detroit and Los Angeles and Chicago cast. And those are the black people. But Roxanne, you know what? I don't think that it is a better story. It is that it is a simple story that lets yes. people off the hook. Correct. Because and we've got a good story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a story that reinforces the biases that people already have. Yes. Right. And so... That's why it's the better story, or I should say Mm -hmm. not better, more effective, because it hits people where they want to be hit. It finds Mm -hmm. that sweet spot of believing that white people are endangered Mm -hmm. and that their time is coming to an end, which is in fact true. In 15 (laughs) years, they will no longer be the majority. And Mm -hmm. I I frankly think it's going to be faster than that. And it terrifies them. But here we are. And so now we have to watch this play out because I don't know how, like, there's no one to stop any of it. And there is now going to be a hand recount in Georgia, which Mm -hmm. I think is going to turn out exactly the same. But Mm -hmm. we're also going to see two very important runoffs for the Senate with Mm -hmm. Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff running against Kelly Loeffler and uh, David Perdue. That dang on Kelly, man. Mm, she is straight up evil. And she owns a WNBA team, which means she yeah. just wants to be a slave master. She wants she wants to punish them, too. She's also mm-hmm. been she's been explicitly angry with her own team, mm-hmm. by the way, uh, which have been women of color and queer led and doing some amazing activism, which we're going to talk about on this show in the future, by the way. Love the work that the WNBA has been doing to center uh, political activism in professional sports. Um, all of the male-dominated leagues, uh, you know, can't touch them. They can't touch them with a 10-foot pole. But Kelly hates them and hates her team and hates their union. Uh, And I think got into this political race as a way to punish them. And so now here we are in all kinds of realms thinking about the transfer of power, whether it's between presidents or politicians moving in and out of various offices. And... Mm -hmm. As writers, Trustee and I are also deeply concerned with the transfer of power in the kinds of institutions we work in, academia, mm-hmm. publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see time and again that change is actually incredibly hard within these yep. institutions, especially yep. when it comes to race. One of the most challenging things for me personally, as I have moved through academia and publishing and what public writing, I guess, as it were, public intellectualism, is seeing up close the way that people manipulate narratives and power relations to maintain their own power. If you get into any of these professions, if you have any experience in any social institution, and you have even a shred of hope 
about what, you know, education and exposure and awareness and relationships can do to change hearts and minds. Let me tell you, these places will beat it out of you. I cannot help but see what is happening in electoral politics right now and liken it to the many, many ways that I have seen people control the board, rewrite the rules so that it can resist or contain or overcome political change in the institution, even when that change might save the institution. That's what's so fascinating to me. Oh, for sure. I I have found in my experience that some of these institutions don't actually want to be saved. What they want Mm -hmm. is to preserve the status quo. And if they can't do that, then they'll let the institution burn. That's right. And I think a lot about this in the context of publishing, Mm. because I've been writing publicly now for about Well, I've been publishing for 26 years, but Mm -hmm. I've been known for writing in small and more significant ways for the past 11, 12 years, give or take. And we're having the same exact conversations today that we were having in 2009 about Mm -hmm. not being able to find enough writers of color, about publishing, not compensating writers of color uh, with any kind of equity as our white counterparts. And mm-hmm. it's incredibly frustrating because you think, is something that's supposed to be a progressive institution really this calcified? And the answer is yes. And there are generally two camps about how you reform a system, how you change an institution. One is the might be thought of as the accommodationist route, which is you have to become part of the system. You change it from the inside out. Lots of structural barriers to doing that. It's not just culture, but institutions are designed to keep people from changing them. That's your real problem, Mm -hmm. which we see when we talk about reforming the police, for example. Uh, But it's also the case when we talk about reforming academia, uh, reforming public sector work, private sector work. Absolutely the case when we talk about reforming publishing from the inside out. And then there is, of course, the disruptive Uh, perspective. And that is blow the whole damn thing up and reimagine a better future. (laughs) Uh, Our question today with a couple of our guests um, is which of those routes they have chosen and why and what they encounter as they try to change these institutions that are really quite critical to how we understand the world and have really important conversations in public life. Today, we are going to have some really interesting conversations with two women who are making moves in publishing. Lisa Lucas, who is the outgoing head of the National Book Foundation. But first up, we're going to be speaking with Tanya McKinnon, who founded and runs McKinnon Literary, a Black-owned literary agency. She has New York Times bestselling authors like Brittany Cooper, author of Eloquent Rage and frequent commentator on the news. It's really amazing to even be able to speak with a Black literary agent, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Our listeners may not know, Roxanne, uh, but you can actually count the number of Black agents uh, in this industry, just like you could count and name the number of Black editors Mm -hmm. at major publishing houses. So Tanya is a really uh, big deal in that she's a bit of a unicorn. Hello, Unicorn. 
Thank you for joining us on Here to Slay today. Thank you so much. And I always say Black-owned, feminist-identified. Oh, I love that. Thank you very much. Mm That's perfect. Because there's a difference. Well, for me, there Mm -hmm. is. I mean, I think feminism is a critical component of my identity and one that I will not sacrifice at any point. Actually, I'm interested in hearing you say that. So how does that manifest in terms of how you run your agency, how you work with your authors, and how you advocate for them when you're negotiating book deals? So I think there's a centrality to the African-American experience and a deeper centrality to the black woman's experience. Now, I want to be clear. I represent everyone. You know, everyone, every progressive Mm -hmm. voice. I want to be clear about that. If you've got some reactionary, you know, homophobic stuff, I'm not your girl. But if you are coming with progressive work that has transformative ideas, technologies and ways for us to live better in this culture, then, you know, I want to hear about it. And Mm -hmm. in terms of being a black feminist, it means that I approach the world, you know, thinking about it from the lens of both the most marginalized position with probably the most hopefulness and the most desire to see transformative change at every level of society. So mm-hmm. I'm looking for books that speak to those, you know, to those larger conversations that we need to have. For so long, you know, we thought of black women in particular, you know, of, of black people as fem, of feminists, of LGBTQ people, Latinx people, you know, Asian American voices as somehow marginal to the American conversational. We're not right. marginal. We are the yeah. American conversation. Well, it's interesting to me because just in like regular parlance, when we say we're a black feminist, uh, for those who are not schooled in what that means, it does sound like you're saying that that is, you know, that you have like this singular lens as if that shrinks your understanding of the world. And I think like one of the things uh, that happens a lot in my own work is that I'll say to people, no, that is actually what makes it broad. When I say that this is black feminist work, that that is me saying it speaks to the entire human experience. Yes. Uh, do people understand? <laughs> yes, thank Preach. you. Do they even understand where you are coming from when you do that work? And what has that been like, frankly, schooling uh, people on what that is? Tressie, what you're saying is so true. Please preach. I mean, I think that they look at us with their reductive lens because mm-hmm. they're exclusionary, because they can't yeah. imagine a world in which we can occupy equal space with them. They can't mm-hmm. imagine that when we envision the world, we're including them. But we mm-hmm. have the most inclusive the most inclusive lens of the world. And, you know, it's always, I think, a little surprising sometimes when white writers come to me and they, then they, you know, inevitably they say to me, you made my work better because you pushed Mm -hmm. me. Oh, wow. You pushed me. (laughs) Um, I tell this, I won't say his name because, you know, it would embarrass him. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. I have a white male writer who came to me and he wanted to write about um, slavery. And I said to him, why as a black woman should I trust you to write about slavery? The, The question floored him. Fair question. It yeah. floored him, though. Because no one had ever questioned him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a scholar. And, and I said, you know what I need you to do for me in order to trust, for me to trust you with this material is I need you to write me a letter. He went away Ooh. for seven days, and then I thought he was not going to come back. Yeah. Homeboy came back, wrote me a letter that made me cry. Okay. His letter made me cry. Then we got on the phone, and then he cried. And he said, nobody has ever asked me why this work is so important to me. And I feel like, that was my critical inventor intervention for him as a black one is that he then wrote the most beautiful proposal because I was yeah. able to tap into a part of him that 
even as a white man, was in translation to other white people. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that my clients like in their experience with me is that, particularly when they're black folks, but even when they're progressive folks living political lives, is they don't need to be in translation with me. They don't have Mm -hmm. to explain to me why the work they're doing is important, why it's necessary. I'm already there. I'm ready to amplify. Mm -hmm. I'm not making Mm -hmm. you say, why? Why should we pay attention? I'm like, how can this be bigger? How is this? Yeah. De- how is this a definitive representation of the American experience? Because that mm-hmm. is what I believe you have in you. Because when I look at particularly black women, you know, to me, that is like it's like <laughs> looking at everything that affirms the beauty and grace and dignity of this American democracy. Mm. Well, that's a that's a hell of a way to put it. You actually touch on something that interests me. I think one of the challenges in publishing is that oftentimes we have to translate our work for the people we work with, for our agents, for our editors, Mm -hmm. for our publicists. And so when we have the rare occasion to work with a black person uh, and let alone a black woman, some of that work is removed because we don't have to do the cultural translation. We don't have to explain Mm -hmm. why we use the word choices that we use or the cadences Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. we use. Oh God, the word choice. That's the, that's the, that's the bane of my existence. One time before I currently have a black editor now at the New York times, but before that I had a white editor and she was great. But I remember (laughs) we we had, because I, you know, I like her, but I remember one time I I did a phrasing and I wish I could remember what the phrasing was, but it was vernacular. Yeah. Every, I mean, it's like vernacular. Yeah. And the copy editor came back and was like, shouldn't it be blah, blah, blah? And I was like, no, this is how people use this phrase. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find myself often having to do that. Uh, and so it's interesting. What are some things that you do as an agent to make sure that your authors have to do as little cultural translation as possible? Um, one simple example is covers. Mm. Sometimes oh, folk come yeah. folk come to me with some crazy covers, some Negro niche covers, yes. and then I have to be like, "No, mm-mm, we are not going to have this." Oh, <laughs> the Negro niche covers. Okay, so I grew up during the um, my entree into contemporary Black women's fiction. I was in middle school, early high school, and it was uh, Terry McMillan's books mm, yeah. were like owning, you know, you know, and I don't know if anybody will remember, go look. There was this classic look to the Terry McMillan mm-hmm. book cover. Yeah. It's this graphic uh, and it's based on a, a African-American uh, artistic style. And I now mm-hmm. know that at the time it was just, you would know a Terry McMillan yeah. book. I'm doing my first book and they come back to me I swear to God, <laughs> this was by, by now it was 2010, right? Whatever. So it's been 25 years since the height of Terry McMillan's book. And I swear to God, it was a Terry McMillan cover. Yeah. And I almost passed out because it's like, what about my, what, what? I was writing a, a nonfiction book, mind you, about a scholarly topic. And it came back with a Terry McMillan book cover and I almost passed out. The book covers is a big one. Now, the problem you might have, and this is certainly not true of all agents, again, we're all individuals and some of us are more progressive, some of us are more sensitive, but if you have to explain to the publisher and your agent why the cover is problematic, as opposed to your agent calling you up and saying, girl, what were they they thinking when they sent us this? Yeah, yeah. That's a different, you know, that's a different modality. And I think that's something that my clients, you know, get to feel with me or, you know, we'll be listening to something and then, you know, we'll be... Texting each other like, mm, girl, what is <laughs> You know, and 
Like, mm, mm. And that in itself is edifying, though. Somebody who reflects back at you that this is this is crazy. Oh, yeah. I will I will tell you some stuff is crazy, yeah. and I will see some crazy stuff. And then my job is to go in and deal with the crazy. And it's okay if yeah. editors hate me for, you know, a day or a week or a year. It's okay. You seem like such a nice woman. How did you become okay with everybody hating you? Um, Brittany Cooper said something that I love. Um, yeah. She said... I'm I'm not nice. I'm kind. Yes. Yes. And there's a there distinction. A and yes, I think is. that I am kind, but I'm not always nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really care about what I do. You know, publishing isn't something that you initially go into for the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, and if you're a black woman, ooh. You know, yeah. I, I know we're having, you know, at the there's a heated moment at this particular of moment. Yeah. But you know, I've been doing this for a while. I opened the doors of my agency six years ago, my own agency. And it took, you know, a long time for me to get here and to be able to have the, you know, both the temerity, you know, I'm older, and to have mm-hmm. the temerity and the feeling like I wanted to open my own shop and I could handle mm-hmm. whatever came my way. And if you're an agent, you know, it takes two to three years before you make money. That's the thing that keeps yeah. people of color out of this mm-hmm. business is yes, because if yes. you got student loans, if you got bills, you know, you yeah. do not necessarily have your upper middle class parents who can say, it's all right, sweetheart, I'll pay the rent for a yeah. month, mm-hmm. two months, mm-hmm. three months, a year. Right. Yep. And that just yep. allows you to to live on fumes, essentially. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, you got to go and make money. And publishing can be slow about that. And agenting mm-hmm. is a slow build. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, things are are very nice. But, you know, the first two years, you know, mm-hmm. of my agency were leaner. And I was very lucky to have people. I don't have a trust fund and I'm I'm not married yeah. to a wealthy man. You know, I didn't have those things I, making yeah, things easier. Yeah, those are the two paths usually. Right. Yeah. But what I had was people who believed in me. And I think for us as black women, sometimes that is our wealth, mm-hmm. is to have somebody just believe in you. So you can yeah. keep going even when you hit that rough spot. Because, you know, we don't always have the material access that other people do. And so when people invest in you, when my friends invested in me, when my when my husband said, he said the <laughs> sweetest thing to me. My husband's yeah. a teacher. He's not a banker. Okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, you know, he said, look, you know, our, our parents came from working class context. If we... Yep. Live, we've, you know, he's like, we've already done so much. We have advanced degrees. You know what I mean? Like, we've already mm-hmm. lived this great life. We'll just live like artists. We've always lived, you know, with a kind of minimalist lifestyle. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he said to me, just free yourself, be free. I want oh, your freedom for you. And I think that is love to me. Anybody who yes, wants my is. freedom for me loves me. And that's what I give to my clients. I want their freedom mm-hmm. for them. Come through. Freedom Freedom. is my magic word. I say it to the people around me all the time who think I'm motivated by money, which don't get me wrong. I like shiny things. I'm an agent. Yes. Yeah. I love shiny things. Mm -hmm. But I say to people, you don't understand. I come from people who cure tobacco for a living. I want to be free. I want to be able to tell people Mm -hmm. no and not have to worry about starving tomorrow. And I don't think people get how, first of all, how little that takes for black women. 
Like we start from such a negative position. It doesn't take a lot for us to be free, but also how much that motivates the decision making. I find in publishing very few people understand that that's, that's how I'm making my decisions. They think I'm doing the thing that a white author would do, which is, okay, I need to be next to so-and-so so that I show up here and I need to do a thing. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I want to be free. <laughs> Preach. Tim, so what does that translate into how you make decisions for building a trajectory for your writers? I always say to my writers, I want you to have a good time. Mm. Hmm. I want you to enjoy your ride. Your writing is the manifestation of your brilliance. Hmm. I want you to manifest your brilliance with joy. That is also part of freedom. You know, from when we begin the proposal writing, I say to my clients, I want you to have time to play. I want you to find the deepest version of your ideas. I want you to liberate your minds. I Mm -hmm. want you to write for our liberation, for the wealth of our collective brilliance, for our legacy. And I think that that makes my job joyous because I Mm -hmm. get to read people liberated on the page, to be their true selves, to tell me things. And here's where I'm selfish. I benefit from everything my writers write. My life is enhanced exponentially by the ideas that my authors bring. I live a charmed life in that every morning I get up and I joke with people. I say, black brilliance is my beat. I get up every morning and talk to some of the smartest black people in America, some of the smartest people in America. My God, my father picked tobacco in North Carolina. He passed three years ago at 94. Wow. Yeah. From Lumberton County. Lumberton. Yes. My people pick tobacco. They pick I'm cotton. I'm from Lumberton. Well, I mean, my Tressie. family's from Lumberton. Hello. Holy moly. Hello. We related. So I'm just <laughs> saying in my, I am, I'm two generations removed from slavery. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that, that is a sobering fact for me. Mm-hmm. I don't take things for granted. My career is a gift mm-hmm. to me. Also, mm-hmm. I do think it's important to say this. When I opened my doors, I was about a progressive agenda. I was about black people. We can be on trend. We can be off trend. I don't care. Uh-huh. I, I am about this. My list expresses who I am in the world. And so whether or not people are trying to sign people up, you know, I'm here when it's up. But more importantly, mm-hmm. I'm here when it's not up. We don't get that a lot as black uh, creative people. No, we don't. We're usually the on trend choice. You know, people want to speak to you when you're on trend. when you're off trend, silence. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. One of the challenges in publishing is that Black writers tend to get smaller advances than our white counterparts. And it can Mm -hmm. be incredibly challenging. So how do you work with your writers and try and get the biggest advances possible given the constraints of this industry? That hasn't fully been my experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, And that may be because my expectation Mm -hmm. is that my clients will get paid. Uh, I see. So I I know what my clients are worth, and Mm -hmm. I go in with the expectation of that worth being honored. Now, make no mistake, some Mm -hmm. clients have to be built. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. It's not every, this, and also publishing is not lotto. Okay. It's not mm-hmm. like you get an agent and sell a book for a million dollars. And by the way, yeah. that can wreck your career. I think that's something people don't I talk about. I wish more people would mm-hmm. talk about that. I agree. These oversized advances, you are yeah. then saddled with an unearned advance. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we got to there's got to be a nice middle ground between getting your paper and having a long term career where you're a multiple book author. Okay, you know, it may be that you start your author with a thirty thousand dollar deal at a smaller house. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that book performs and then you move, you know, and then you build and that author then has a backlist. But they're here to write another day. So, Roxanne, when you were talking about, because Roxanne has been at the center of these conversations about advances, and it's interesting, y'all both took it for granted that people will know what we mean by a million dollars could wreck your career, because that that feels counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. I understand it, but why, what do you mean by a big advance can actually be one of the worst things that happen for you as a writer? So, if you're a first-time writer, let's say your book is fantastic, and I go out and I sell it for a million dollars. It's great. It feels great. You know, it's like going to Vegas mm-hmm. and hitting the slot machines. And you pull oh, the lever the first time, hands, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Pull that slot <laughs> lever and it goes ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And the money yes. comes out. Well, in publishing, you have to earn back your advance at your royalty rate, mm-hmm. right? So let's say the rate is 15%. So you have to earn back a million dollars in advance at 15% of what's coming in, which is why the publisher goes into the black way before the author. Let's say that book sells 30,000 copies. Which is respectable, by the way, by normal standards. That's respectable. You have a million dollar advance. That's a failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The house perceives it as a failure. And all the publishers can look up the numbers. That's our other problem. So it's not like Uh... that's a secret. Okay. So then when I go to sell the next book, you know, they might, you know, then they then they have reason to say to me, you know, so-and-so paid a million for that first book. It didn't earn out. You know, then mm-hmm. there's like a conversation where I'm not in the seller's seat in quite the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. One of the things I find most important in terms of an agent is taste. So how did you develop mm-hmm. your taste and decide which books speak to you and which books you think that you're best positioned to sell? You know, my taste is, you know, whether or not I get excited by, you know, Mm -hmm. the ideas um, that are on the page and how they're presented. And if I'm excited, that tells me that I might be able to excite, you know, one or two other people out there. Mm -hmm. What is it about coming to trust your ability to pick what will work? I think one of... uh, one of the disconnects that we see sometimes on some of the, with the black women that we've had on this show is we've talked about sort of stepping into the power we have over our own lives, fully recognizing that there are these external forces. But what we're saying is that both of those things are true, uh, is learning to trust your own decision making about uh, what you're doing. And I always feel like publishing is one of those industries uh, where because it is dealing with creative work, everything is so subjective that you can be, I think, a little uh, confused about or you can undervalue your perspective on a work and that it takes a lot of trust. You got to develop trust. I know just even as a writer, trusting myself that if I say it's good, it doesn't matter that 15 white people didn't understand it in translation. I was in the pocket, right? Like, And that is a process of coming to trust myself. How do you come to trust yourself to make those decisions, especially since now everything falls on you. It's your shop. I think this goes back to our conversation about freedom. Mm. Mm. And I think the freer you feel, 
the more you can own your mistakes and your successes and forgive yourself and have compassion with regard to yourself. I mean, the, the beauty of aging, the beauty of the beauty of menopause is that... <laughs> I didn't realize there was that, any beauty to menopause. <laughs> but there is some beauty in that there are some things that you let go. And for me, one of the things that I have been letting go increasingly is this idea that I have to know everything and be everything. I don't. I'm just me. Mm -hmm. I can forgive myself on any given day. Sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I get it really right and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get it really wrong. But I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be free. And I think that 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 awareness allows us breathing room. So, you know... There are books that haven't been for me that have been successful that I haven't seen. That's okay. Mm. You know, early on, Michael Eric Dyson said something um, valuable to me. He said, it ain't all your money. Hmm. And I really thought about that. All the money, it ain't all your money, Mm. yeah. It ain't all your money. Sometimes Mm. that's not our money. Mm. And I think it's important to be able to say that too. So, you know, do I get it? It is subjective, you know, and I like what I like and I'm comfortable with that. Roxanne has been known, we do these live events, you know, back in the before times. And I've seen her say to people, because, you know, they all come up to her and want her to get, read her. They want her to read their thing, right? They all come up with a little piece of paper, bless their little hearts. Um, she can't say it, so I'm going to say it for her. Y'all got to stop sending her. Y'all got to stop bringing her stuff. <laughs> but and she'll say, one of the first things early in our friendship, I remember going, oh, I watched her say to someone, that's not for me. Give that to someone who will be able to invest in valuing it. Like, and just, she just didn't even take the paper. And it was so stunning to me because I take everything everybody, or I was still in that stage where I did anyway. I would take everything everybody gave me, right? And I would try to respond to it. And Ross was like, no, give that to someone who will value that. And one of the things I learned from that is that there is a process of, of our own work in the world it is a much about our own maturity, our own as people. Like I don't know that you can do your best work until you understand those things about yourself. Yeah. And you can't shortcut it. It's so funny you remember that. <laughs> yeah, because it was a moment. It, it took was a me moment. a long time to get to that moment because I, I hate disappointing people, but I found that when I accepted people's like manuscripts and so on, then they would follow up via email. <laughs> and I would feel bad because it's not that I don't care or don't want to read other people's work. It's that I don't have time. I I don't want to like build up that disappointment that's unnecessary for someone who's like sitting around thinking maybe she's going to respond to me today. And so I just that's it's it's actually kinder to say up front, this this can't happen. That's the nice kind distinction again. That's exactly the nice kind distinction. And I think black women Really, we always have to negotiate that nice, kind distinction. Mm-hmm. I am, and we are rarely considered mm-hmm. nice or kind when, in fact, sometimes we are the nicest, kindest motherfuckers in the world. Mm-hmm. You just don't know how. That's absolutely it. true. You know, I'm curious about this. Uh, I know that in other interviews, you've talked about how bl- not all black writers want to be represented by a black agent, and I actually am not surprised to hear that. And Mm-mm. so. Has that changed at all over the course of your career? And what is that What is that tension? I think there are two things at work. I think publishing is a business of referral, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You find agents through referral. And because there's so few Black agents, the majority of agents that are being referred are white. Mm-hmm. And then I think sometimes 
We see it in sometimes people choosing the big agencies over the smaller boutique agencies. Somehow the big agencies, they believe, have more juice. You know, and I think we see it in terms of sometimes people saying that maybe a white agent can get them more money or has yep. more connections in publishing. They'll be able to speak white like that. There's a, Well, and there is. I mean, some of it is that we... If you grow up black, you do know that there's this language of power that white people are having over your head. And I think we go, oh, my white agent will be able to speak white with (laughs) the other white people. And when I'm not in the room, there'll be some special language, yeah, of access. But I think the whole key is that we got to get in the room. Like we don't transform the language in that room so that it works more in our favor if we're not in the room. So I think... I think it's particularly hard if you're a black woman because, frankly, we're just so devalued. And some of us devalue ourselves. I mean, I'm in a battle to value myself as much as I need to value myself. Now, it's an active battle, and I believe I'm winning it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's not like the culture ever says to you, hey, you, you're great. You know, just come through the way you are. That's enough today. So, you know, it's these, it's these issues of perception and self-perception that, that we're still not through, that integration hasn't solved for us. They've made them more complex, you know, and I would love to see more agents of color because that mm-hmm. means that the door is widening and we're stepping through and more people of color can see us cutting deals. And then it isn't, you know, then I'm not a unicorn. Who wants to be yeah. a unicorn? Me and, you know, seven other black women, mm-hmm. you know, or agents right now. None of us want to be unicorns. It's stressful. Yeah. One thing that has, a strange thing I'm going to say that it maybe has been a positive from the pandemic is that all this working at home, I think mm-hmm. that might allow more people to enter publishing. Because I think when oh, we yeah. don't have to be in these spaces where we yeah. are experiencing daily microaggressions, mm-hmm. it allows us to have a quality of self-focus that gives us the strength and stamina to hold on through until we get into greater positions of power. Yeah, that's a wonderful point, actually. I think that the pandemic, for all of its you know, disruption, mm-hmm. it's the Black kids who now don't have to go to racist classrooms who are thriving when they're at home doing homeschool. It is the academics who are like, I don't want to speak up, but frankly, I'm doing a little better because I get to write at home and I don't have to talk to, you know, I don't have to talk to Karen all day. Like there is a there is a safety and a security to working at home, especially when the pandemic levels the field and everybody has to work at home. Like this time period, one of the uh, things that Roxanne and I started with at the beginning of this pandemic when we were planning shows was we said, yeah, it's going to be horrible, but we wanted to look in the little pockets where Black women in particular were going to be able to thrive in this moment, precisely because we were like, yeah, but look at what it takes off the table for us. We're actually seeing that a lot in the guests that we've had on the show that you're like, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, it's disruptive, but I've gotten to rest for the first time in my life. One woman told uh-huh. us early on. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I just because yeah. when she said it, I realized I'm resting, too. For the first time yes. in 20 years. Ever. You know, there's a lot of stuff when you go out there. And there's yes. a lot of stuff if you're, you know, just because we don't name the 25 microaggressions that we endured in a day. I mean, if I stopped mm-hmm. everybody for every crazy thing they said to me, I would, you know, I wouldn't get You'd down the block. never get anything done. Right? Yep. So, but there are these little poisonous barbs and you're plucking them all day. And it is nice to feel like that's coming at you a little bit less. Yep. 
Yeah, I don't think people realize that, uh, especially uh, non-Black people and white people in particular, when they see us push back against a microaggression, they think we do that all day. And I'm like, no, I chose the one of the 100 of these to respond to. Yeah. And you are seeing this and thinking, I just live my life. If I did that, I would literally never, I'd never have gas in the car. I would never (laughs) eat. It would be my whole day. (laughs) I don't think people understand Would just be telling people. They don't. They really don't. I've actually stopped talking about it because... People don't want to hear about it. They don't care, really. Mm -hmm. They just hear the word microaggression. It's the same as hearing the word intersectionality or any of these other words that make people feel are privileged. Like they just they immediately shut down and just think that has nothing to do with me. And well, Mm -hmm. it may not have anything to do with you, motherfucker, but I have been very (laughs) patient today. And that patience has run out. today and it is only 9 a.m mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so much for being on today team before we left you go we have a question that we ask everyone who comes on our show but especially the black women and that is how can we help you do you meaning roxanne and i and the show and our listeners how can we help you do what it is you do in the world Thank you so much for amplifying my voice today, for giving space to a Black woman representative. I mean, it just, it means the world to me. And I think that you're helping all of us by being out here every day, representing in the way that you're representing. Because, you know, y'all are the best of us and you make you do us proud all the time. So thank you for opening up this space on your show and then individually for us. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Aww. Is there a, a book that you are really hyped about that you want to share with oh, our yeah. listeners? Oh, there are a couple of books right now. My book, Glory, just hit the New York Times bestseller list in middle grade hardcover fiction. And it is a beautiful book of images of black children done by Creative Soul Photography. I think one of the things that people don't acknowledge is that as black people, we aren't allowed to be perceived as innocent in childhood. And this book of images of innocent children is so necessary in this moment. Um, I have a book coming out, a long time coming, by Michael Eric Dyson, December 1st. Salome Shatillet um, is doing a book mm-hmm. on Alice Walker. Robin Kelly oh. is going to be doing a book called Black Body Swinging. You know, all okay. these great black thinkers have books out. Alicia Garza has Purpose of Power out right now. Mm-hmm. So I just feel, you know, really, really blessed to be working with all these people. Thank you for letting me call out their names. Absolutely. Truly our pleasure. Thank you for being on today. Stay safe. Stay sane. I stand you both. So thank you. Thank you very much. And we stand a sister who's got a book list. <laughs> always, always. And when she has that book list at the ready. Listen, that's how you knew she was good at her job. Uh, <laughs> if you didn't know it at the top of the interview, at the end, you absolutely knew it. Mama came ready, which we always have to be, by the way. That was Tanya McKinnon, founder of McKinnon Literary. You can find those book recommendations in the show notes. You know, one of the things that struck me most was that she decided to strike out on her Mm -hmm. own. You know, we live in a a country that loves to valorize starting a small business, but Mm -hmm. starting a small business is actually really hard. Mm -hmm. And to do so in New York City, in publishing as a Black Mm -hmm. woman... 
Yep. I really admire from the grit. Eastern North Carolina, by the way. Mm-hmm. Had I known she was from Lumberton, North Carolina, Lumberton's one of those places you don't make it out of, Roxanne. Mm-hmm. You've been through these places. You know I where have. I'm talking about. <laughs> the idea that she is doing the damn thing, not just in general, but in an industry like publishing that might be more status conscious than even academia. Mm-hmm. You go to the right schools. It's a very small world, very New York centric, very elite. You just don't get there from Lumberton, North Carolina is all I'm saying. <laughs> and yet here she is. And... That's right. Well, hell, here I am. So speaking of people who decided to go out on their own, that's one way to go. The other way to go, of course, is to try to transform the institution from the inside. Our next guest is Lisa Lucas. Uh, Roxanne and I know Lisa well and it was a joy to have her on the show. Lisa Lisa has gone from institution to institution transforming them, honey. Absolutely. She is the incoming senior vice president of Knopf Doubleday. And right now she is finishing up her tenure as the first woman and the first black person to lead the National Book Foundation. Before that, she was the publisher of the online arts magazine Guernica. Lisa is one of the most powerful women in publishing. That is uh, not an overstatement at all. She's here to talk about what it is like to hold that kind of power as a Black woman, not just in an historically white space, which we absolutely talk about, but again, in a white, elite, cultural institution, these places that shape culture for the rest of us. In our interview, I asked her, what is it like as a Black woman to be going into a big new job with all this media attention and Mm -hmm. all eyes on her at a time when conversations about inclusion, diversity, and equity in publishing are raging? I mean, it's scary. You know, I mean, you hope that the position is offered in good faith Mm -hmm. and that knowing that my loud mouth, you know what I think. Right, you turn on Twitter and you know exactly what I think, yeah. where I stand. You listen to a panel I've done and you know what the deal is. And you hope that when you walk in the door that that you were brought there for that very reason, to sort of take a look, to to say, to question, to say this doesn't look right. This this needs to be reconsidered. And to have, you know, it's like there's that, you know, that conversation about what's the difference between diversity and equity and inclusion. You know, and I'm looking for equity. I'm looking for mm. I'm looking for the room to look like rooms they haven't looked like before. I'm looking for inclusion in the conversation, but I'm looking for equity in, you know, the weight of my words and my opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, I want that to be as important as my peers. You know, mm-hmm. so it's scary because you don't know until you're there whether or not somebody said, I really offer this to you in good faith, this equity. You know, um, and, you know, I've fought my whole life against inequity and yeah. just even in my own professional life, just walking into doors and being discounted, mm-hmm. you know, feeling junior, being a young person, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and just not being taken seriously. And I Yeah, and I, let's um, talk about that, about the being taken seriously, because at the heart of when you start talking about the power to change the equity relationship, because when you say equity to me, I immediately think, okay, this is about divvying up the pie differently. That that mm-hmm. just by definition means giving some people more than they have historically gotten, and maybe some other people will get less <laughs> than they have mm-hmm. historically gotten. 
how does your experience of being that person walking into that room who is discounted, who is diminished in these ways, underappreciated, low expectations of what you might bring to the room, shape what you think equity will look like at a major publishing house? You know, I mean, I think a lot of that is like not necessarily even diversity, right? Some of it is age. Mm. You know, I mean, generational shifts are important. And I think that taking young people seriously you know, and not just saying, well, your opinion doesn't count for 10 more years is mm-hmm. the kind of thing I'd like to see fall full away. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, too, to your point about sort of like how do you divvy up the pie differently, I mean, I think you have to also look at not just current audience but future audience. I mean, I think that when you look at the demographics of the country, mm-hmm. when you look at audiences that haven't been served well, you know, you have to start – thinking about the reallocation of resources towards developing those audiences. Mm-hmm. Like, let's, why do we spend a billion dollars marketing to the people we know are going to buy a book? And yeah. why don't we instead take five years to say, these strategic investments in black women mm-hmm. are going to pay off because we know we have the art. You know, we've known we had the art. You know, Roxanne, you wrote the article, We Are Many, with a list of every single person that Mm -hmm. was writing at that exact moment in time. We know we have the talent. What we don't have is the channel towards the reader. Mm -hmm. And that's not just about black people don't want books. Of course we do. We over-index in every single kind of cultural consumption because we enjoy storytelling, because we are are consumers like anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, it's about creating that road. Yeah. So on November 18th, you are going to actually oversee the final National Book Awards. I imagine that must be a bittersweet moment. Yes. (laughs) But one of your goals was to really elevate the ceremony and make it something more like the Oscars. And I think that for a lot of writers has been really interesting to watch because we don't really get any sort of glitzy awards. Sometimes they just mail you the award in the mail. I know. They just like send you a little plaque. <laughs> yeah, I don't like, know if hmm. people know this, but it is very underwhelming. The people, mm-hmm. t- nobody shows up and throws flowers at you or anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, do you think you've accomplished what you wanted in terms of the National Book Awards? I think we got, the, I think we got part of the way. You know, I think okay. these things, it's a big, it's an old ship, big ship. Those don't turn fast, you know, mm-hmm. and you also have to do the work of making people external to literature care about literature to make that kind of swing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that you're going to bring millions of people in overnight or over four years or five years is ridiculous, you know? Um, but I do think in terms of the ceremony, I hope our writers feel really special. We do this medal ceremony every year, and it'll be digital this year, um, where everybody comes together and it's like, it's I call it family dinner. It's where I tell everybody that you are our family forever. You are our canon. And I think that the ceremony feels warmer and more festive and people are less like this is a bougie, you know, event Mm -hmm. where I have to put on a ball gown and more like this is actually how we celebrate our great, beautiful art. You know, and I think that thinking about how to make it wider, you know, just the live stream and the way that we produce the live stream and promote the live stream and have different hosts. You know, we've had a lot more celebrities around over the past few years. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think we are getting there, though, Roxanne. I think we're getting there. I think that um, this is going to be a baton pass. You know, Mm -hmm. I hope the next person is set up to keep on pushing in that direction Mm -hmm. because I think it matters. I do think that there's a reason we watch the Oscars, a reason we watch the Grammys a reason why we love these shows. And I want books to have the same thing. I will say the award ceremony uh, that I went to last year, obviously, was, I thought, 
television ready. The production of the event was extremely slick, but not in a creepy way. I mean, my mom was my date and we had a blast. We were very comfortable. So speaking though of turning big ships, you're going from one big ship to another big ship. And we talk about you wanted the book awards to matter because you intuitively know that they do culturally. How does something like Knopf matter, not just to the people who are published and publishing, but why do these institutions matter and why will it matter that you are there, that the people that entering into that room matters? So I've always been interested for the most part in organizations with a legacy, right? Um, You know, I've I've always been interested in historical institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be at Pantheon and Schocken, which is underneath Knopf. Right. right. These are two deeply progressive, 80-year-old, extraordinarily progressive imprints that have Kafka, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that our backless is Marguerite Duras, it's Studs Terkel, yeah. it's Mouse and Persepolis. Mm-hmm. And these, are, these books say a lot about, you know, the conversations developing over the past century, Mm-hmm. there 's one thing to go run an imprint. I am in control of forty books that go into the world or fifty books or whatever it is. you know and great, I can publish culture, but I think that there 's something to taking a history right and saying okay here 's this progressive home for incredible, talented literary voices, and how do I take that mm-hmm. and make it something that is exactly the same but for today? You know, how do I look at the needs that we had in 1951 or 1949 and say, what is the equivalent here and what does that look like? And, and what books do we need for our canon, for our, you know, memory, you know, for our souls? And um, I think that that's really interesting to have the, the freedom to rebuild and to, to think towards the future and to give something that's been around for a long time a future. So you have this huge institution you're going into and you have a lot of ambition, but what are you worried about? Do you feel pressure stepping into a role like this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every damn day. And how do you manage it? Because I know a lot of us who become the first uh, feel all kinds of pressure because the pressure is there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so I how try do you not handle to, it? Yeah, I try not to think about that part when I'm doing the work. It, you know, right mm-hmm. now is a particularly horrible moment pressure-wise because i got to finish up the awards and a the foundation thing, job, right. and I want to do my level best for an institution I will love for my whole life. And then you've got the pressure of six months of waiting after the world knows to go do this thing. So everybody's like, got not only did you get the job, but everybody's got six months to wait and see what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think a stressor, too, is like I've worked at nonprofits for 21 years of mm-hmm. my life. Um, I'm scared of like the layers of corporate bureaucracy and okay. figuring out and Cause, yeah, this just is like it's more cutthroat. Yes, it it okay. I was about to say let, I want to talk kind of concretely about that. Publishing of all of the elite institutions is known as being excessively cutthroat and competitive. Like mm-hmm. especially considering it is um, not necessarily women led, but women dominated. Publishing has a lot of women, not at the top where you now are, not necessarily in the executive suite, but this is a woman heavy industry and extremely competitive, especially given everything that's going on in publishing right now. You've got, you know, the growing competition um, from uh, digital spaces, which is still continuing its trajectory. 
all of these conversations about how you grab people's attention when we have so much to look mm-hmm. at. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I feel sometimes like we're awash in content, right? Yeah. So this is like a particular moment. And then you were talking about you're stepping into an institution with a history. Does any of that feel to you stifling? Because it, while it can give you like a foundation, I would think it would also feel, do you feel stymied in some way considering all of the challenges that are happening around publishing right now? It wouldn't be interesting if we didn't have the challenge. I wouldn't want yeah. to do a job where you slip in and everything's going great and mm-hmm. just stay the course. You know, that's just not who I am. I'm a fixer, mm-hmm. you know, and a builder. And it's just like, I'm not a maintainer. You know, I, I, that doesn't scare me at all. And, you know, like in terms of the sort of competitiveness and the sort of roughness of doing business, I mean, it's like I didn't get here by being sweet. And, it, you okay. know, I think that you see it on Twitter. I'm sweet and nice and non-combative, but it's like, but I, I also, I'm kind, but I also, <laughs> you know, sort yeah. of like I'm fiercely, fiercely competitive, Uh huh. Mm-hmm. you know, and fiercely, fiercely you know, able and willing to sort of defend that which I believe to be right. Mm-hmm. So mm. I feel okay. I'm ready. All right. You ain't no punk is what we're saying. <laughs> no, no punk. Okay. Well, you know, a lot of times when people are brought into positions like this where they're the first, mm-hmm. uh, they're sometimes set up for failure. Not intentionally always, but they can be if there are no mm-hmm. resources that are put into helping someone succeed. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing or what have you asked of Penguin Random House to support you in succeeding as the publisher of Pantheon? Mm-hmm. I mean, so some of those details are like not things I can like totally talk about, mm. but it's, right, um, of course. yeah, whether or not I was going to be set up to win here was a real part of the conversation. And I don't think mm-hmm. if I didn't trust, really trust the women that brought me together, you know, you've got uh, Madeline McIntosh, the yeah. CEO of mm-hmm. Penguin Random House. You've got Maya Mavji who's the president of the Knopf Doubleday Group, and Reagan Arthur, who's the publisher of Knopf. And these are all women I knew and women that I was able to speak very candidly to and uh, women that I believe in. Mm -hmm. I mean, forget about set up to win. Look, I've never been a publisher. And these women have been doing this work for decades. And so, you know, going someplace where people whose talent I admire so much are willing to share that knowledge with me. That's the best setup because it's like, I need to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I feel really good about that. That is Lisa Lucas, the new senior vice president and publisher of Knopf Doubleday. It's going to be great to see what kinds of books she brings into the Mm -hmm. publishing world and uh, how she begins to reshape it. And that is our show for this week. Trusty and I will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, please do follow us and let us know what you think of this episode and of the show on Twitter and Instagram and even at gmail.com at H-E-A-R to slay. From Luminary, Here to Slay is executive produced by us, Roxanne Gay and Tressie McMillan-Cottom. Our senior producer is Curtis Fox, and our producers are Sarah Wyman and Catherine Finaloza. Production support, as always, from the lovely Lauren Garcia and Caitlin Adams.
If you're enjoying what you're hearing, join us over on Luminary, where you can hear more of Roxanne and me and more great conversations, including an episode where we speak to the luminous Gabrielle Union about surviving in Hollywood as a beautiful, talented Black woman. Visit luminary.link slash Black Voices. That's luminary.link slash Black Voices.